Welcome to Celebrating Act Two. Celebrating Act Two is the user manual for the second half of your life. Welcome back to Celebrating Act Two with uh, special guest John Mariani. Uh, good morning, John. Good morning. John, good to see you. Um, I was reading your uh, a, a recent, not the most recent, uh, newsletter, your virtual gourmet. Uh, you wrote an article about uh, how we owe a lot of our food in America, our cuisine, I will say, to um, immigrants, immigrant food. And uh, I assume, well, I know for a fact, having read some of your books, that you've talked about this subject quite frequently. You wrote uh, America's Encyclopedia uh, pardon me, the Encyclopedia of American Food, and you also wrote America Eats Out, which I really I think is a great read. Um, so I, my comment is, yes, we owe a lot to the Italians and the French for our food. Why isn't there more Irish restaurants out there? Well, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> the real point of my article was that not only have they obviously contributed a lot to our food, but they've made America the uh, most diverse cuisine in the entire world. Chinese in China, Chinese food in China, there's Sichuan, there's Hunan, there's uh, Cantonese food in France, you have this Parisian food, and there's uh, food of the Loire Valley, and so forth. So in Italy, you have all sorts of foods going all the way down to Calabria and Sicily, and Tuscan food is different from Roman food. <clears throat> but none have, none has the incredible diversity that we have because of the waves of immigrants who have come here since uh, Columbus who started off what was called the Columbian Exchange, in which he brought, um, he didn't bring anything at first. He was interested in the spice route, remember, not gold, uh, right, right. Find spice. And what he brought back immediately to Europe was everything from uh, strawberries and corn to turkeys and um, uh, chili peppers, chocolate, all sorts of things. And in successive voyages, he would bring back, and the English would bring back, things like wheat, which was not grown, they grew corn all over the Americas. And they, he brought wheat and pigs and chickens and a whole lot of other things that, right from the start, made uh, the immigrants who came over, the English and the, and the Mexican, rather the Spanish and the Portuguese, they bought their own uh, idea. Um, one of the reasons that the Puritans almost didn't survive the first winter in Massachusetts because they planted wheat and hey it didn't come up because there was no wheat growing in Massachusetts so the um, Indians showed them hey dummies plant corn that's what we live on here and they did and they survived as a result oh but you were asking about Irish food well uh, the Irish were part of the first great enormously uh, prodigious wave after the Civil War of Europeans. Uh, let me put the word starving Europeans in front of that. Um, after the Civil War, America was developing the West. Our manifest destiny had gone all the way to California, and um, we needed people. We just did not have that many human beings to take care of this vast, vast land of ours. So it was just an open invitation for uh, people from Europe and from Asia, too, the Chinese who came to build the railroads in the West, um, 
uh, we needed people to do all sorts of things. The, I, the uh, Italians were stonecutters. So I live here in New York. If you go to the Bronx Zoo, if you go to the Botanical Gardens here in the Bronx, that was all built by Italians who lived in the neighborhood next door, which to this day is the Little Italy of the Bronx. So they all had their, their talents. Uh, now, as for the uh, Irish, the Irish came over approximately the same time, even a little before the Italians and the Jews. Um, and of course, that's why in New York, the uh, Irish Tammany Hall controlled the uh, uh, New York uh, political system, having taken it away from the, from the English, which you can see in a very violent movie, um, Gangs of New York, that Michael Scorsese made about the Anglo Anglo gangs versus the Irish gangs. So the Irish had come from a country that was not only poor, uh, but starving. But it was 1845 that a uh, scourge took place on the potato crops of Ireland. That was called the potato famine, the great famine of 1845. And you say, well, didn't they have other things to eat? The English had planted the potato which came from America. The white potato is actually from the Americas. It was brought over and it found that it propagated extremely well in the Irish countryside. And the, 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 some Irish historians uh, in the past used to say, oh, the British did that just, just in order to penalize us, uh, to keep us tied to one crop. No, that was not entirely true. The, the reason was that they had lots of mouths to feed in Ireland and the English um, controlled Ireland at that time. And they said, well, look, give this to the people to raise. It really, really um, grows well. You have to eat a lot of potatoes um, in order to get the niacin and all of the vitamins because they didn't have meat and they really had fish and they had really had greens and vegetables and so forth, which to this, to, to this day, Irish are known as potato eaters and, um, and um, cold cannon is one of their great dishes. But in 1845, the crop failed. And literally millions of Irish died from starvation, from starvation. Those lucky enough to get away by the tens of thousands shipped off across the Atlantic to New York, Boston, Providence, other cities uh, in, the, in the Northeast. Uh, so many that today there are more Irish in New York than there are in Dublin. And they came to uh, New York and they found bounty, they found markets, they could pretty much buy what they wanted and they did not have to just eat, um, uh, eat potatoes. And their children were growing healthier and taller and stronger and living longer. But they had not, because they were immigrants who were completely tied to that one crop with no gastronomy to speak of, no great culinary tradition to speak of, except among the wealthy who had beef and pork and everything, um, they didn't open the kinds of restaurants that the Italians did, the pizzerias, the trattorias, and the Jews did with their delicatessens, um, because they came more from a background that had a much, much richer culture, even though they were very poor and starving too. So that's why the Irish opened bars. Now, they did know pubs. There were plenty of pubs back in 1845. Uh, back in the uh, the Irish cities, capital cities like Dublin. So that's where their um, uh, expertise went, into the pubs, not into Irish restaurants per se. Although the, the, the corned beef and cabbage, which is probably the 
best known Irish dish in America is unknown in in um, in Ireland and uh, those great buffets. But the other things, shepherd's pie and the and the the um, the, the platter and everything, uh, were all part of Irish uh, cuisine in America as it developed. Well, John, bye bye. That's a fine <laughs> fine story, Bio, and I I appreciate your perspective on the Irish condition way back then, but right now, the Irish mostly go to the pizzeria. I can tell you by personal pizzeria, Italian food. Why? Yeah. I, I I think around, at least around me in Southern California, um, it is mostly Italian food. There are um, Asian food uh, uh, and variations of Asian food, Thai, et cetera, et cetera, Chinese, Japanese sushi. Um, you know what I miss here? And it, it might just be my region, French food. We had, uh, when we lived in Claremont, where art is, we had, I think, two good French restaurants. Just great, great French restaurants. I, I don't know why there's no French food down here. You have to go down to uh, down to San Diego to find a good, uh, from where I am anyway, to find a good French food. But American food today really is, uh, maybe I'm wrong, ethnic. That's what I think of. When you go out to eat, we think of uh, what kind of ethnic food do you want? Mm -hmm. Although for some reason, and I don't understand why, the term ethnic is now held in low esteem by ethnic people. Um, it shouldn't because it doesn't mean anything demeaning at all, except they say, well, why aren't, why isn't French food an ethnic food? Well, of course it is, but it, it came to mean Mexican and Chinese and Italian and Indonesian and so forth. Um, and they just don't like to be lumped into one category rather than the other. The reason, by the way, that French food, which was very, very popular in the big cities across the United States as the, <clears throat> the cuisine of note, the standard for great restaurants, was that the French mostly went to Canada. Let's face it, Nova Scotia, Canada. The Acadians, who were French, went to Louisiana, where their name Acadians was um, transmogrified into Cajuns. And uh, you and I had to, in grammar school, read uh, Longfellow's Evangeline, right? Uh, this is the forest primeval, murmuring pines and the hemlocks. So aside from that, the French did not go throughout most of the United States, but in both New York, where the first French restaurants were opened in the 20th century uh, and before in the 19th century in the great uh, hotels, um, New Orleans was the great repository of French cuisine. Uh, the first restaurant opened down there, in fact, was uh, Antoine's, which was opened in 1840, I think, 18, 1840. And that's still around today, serving Creole French food. By Creole, it was food that was influenced by the area uh, people, including the Choctaw Indians and others, whereas... Um, and the Spanish, because, you know, the Colot of uh, Louisiana, New Orleans, is, is, we've flown under seven flags. Um, the Spanish were there, the French were there, the English were there, everyone was there, the Italians were there. And uh, this influenced Creole cuisine, whereas Cajun food, more specifically, is backwoods Louisiana food, where you're likely to find a badger in, in the gumbo <laughs> that you are uh, a piece of veal. <laughs> Uh, John, uh, a slightly different twist uh, on this. Uh, uh, I've been in California for about 30 years, but 
when I was back in the mother country, uh, in the New York metropolitan area, uh, the place that my wife and I would go out to that didn't, wasn't particularly a specialty place like a, uh, an Italian or a restaurant or what have you, would be a good Greek diner. And mm -hmm. it seems that uh, from time to time, different ethnic groups get involved in opening up a, a particular kind of restaurant. And they would have all manner of food, uh, uh, Greek, Italian, uh, just about everything you can think of, and, and generally quite good. And they would bake their own uh, uh, pastries and uh, cakes and things like that. Um, have you found, um, uh, besides the Greeks in the New York area, other ethnic groups that uh, began to just be in the general food service, but there, thereby having an opportunity to get their particular brand, let's say a, a, a Greek uh, souvlaki's, and if that's particularly Greek, uh, get exposed and then uh, getting more ethnic restaurants for their area. So were the Greeks unique in that or uh, just because they happened to get into the business in New York? Um, not unique, but the diner is a uh, unusual and unique situation because the Greeks in Greece, back in Greece, there's no such thing as a diner. There never was. They had cafes, they had coffee houses, they had their own restaurants called tabernas, but they didn't have diners. And what happened was that the original, the first diner opened 150 years ago or more in Providence, Rhode Island. It used to be wheeled into town and wheeled out by a horse. And uh, uh, it's still there. It's not wheeled in and out by a horse. It had nothing to do with Greeks. Um, diners as such started to get a uh, grease uh, greasy uh, reputation as you know, called roadside diners, you know, greasy spoons. Still no Greece, Greek association. It was only when the Greeks came into uh, New York and other uh, Tarpon Springs and other places that they, um, having no diner experience at all, simply glommed onto it. Um, they made it their own for no particular reason. And they called it the Olympia Diner, and they called it the Corinthian Diner, and the Ionian right. Diner, and so forth, Aegean Diner, uh, Zeus's Diner. And what they did, like many others of uh, the ethnic uh, families, they became family operations. And they had, as you said, these enormous menus with franks and beans and macaroni and cheese, but they started to introduce the dolmas and the uh, Greek um, uh, uh, grape leaves and all of the Greek uh, foods on a separate section. And it just happened. Um, one of the great producers, manufacturers of these beautiful streamlined diners that the, the Greeks ran was in fact where John and I uh, grew up in, in New Rochelle, New York. And uh, they were copied all over the country. Uh, but you won't find as many Greek diners in, in the Southwest or out there in California because it was more of a... Um, a Eastern seaboard uh, phenomenon. So to the so-called chop suey parlor, there's no such thing as the chop suey parlor in China. These were adaptions for American tastes uh, in Chinatowns, in San Francisco and Los Angeles and, uh, and uh, New York, certainly, where they came up with these things called chop suey and egg foo young. So those were really uh, adaptions of uh, the food. There's Cuban Chinese food, which is really another adaption. There's the Teppanyaki restaurant, 
which they don't really have. They don't. Have, they didn't have steakhouses in Japan until Rocky Aoki opened the first Benihana of Tokyo in New York with the teppanyaki and they're flipping the shrimp tails and, and everything. It's a lot of fun. Everything catches on fire. And uh, that is specifically an American-Japanese phenomenon also. So much so that one of his relatives opened a, the first Benihana in Tokyo, but he called it Benihana, New York. The one in New York is called Benihana, <laughs> Tokyo. So yeah, all of all of these adoptions. Uh, Mexican food in America, the menus of, uh, of most Mexican restaurants, including in Florida, including even in the Southwest, were copies of Cuban menus and Spanish menus rather than uh, Texas, uh, rather than uh, Mexican food. And Mexicans, of course, loathe the whole idea of Tex-Mex food when it's very similar. It's just not as regional. So if you go to Mexico, you have Oaxacan food, Mexico City-style food, and Chihuahua-style food, whereas the average um, uh, Tex-Mex or Mexican restaurant in, uh, in the United States now except at the higher end, um, are generally copies of Tex-Mex food with the enchiladas and the burritos, the chibichangas, and um, the, El, the chipotle style of uh, Southwest cooking. And, of course, then the chain restaurants came in, mm. and we've got a chain for every ethnic food you can think of, <laughs> it seems to me. But I, I really am impressed by um, America's adaption adoption and adaption of all these various ethnic cuisines uh, to the point where almost in every city in the country, you can go out and have a wide choice of uh, cuisines to, to dine on. Through almost everywhere. In other words, hey, we're going to get good Mexican food in Detroit. Believe me, there are good Mexican <laughs> restaurants in Detroit. We're going to get uh, good Greek food in, uh, in Oklahoma. Believe me. St. Louis, uh, Colorado, uh, Texas, I mean, all over this country. Houston, Texas, one of its largest communities are the Vietnamese who completely took over and dominate the seafood industry in Houston. And uh, they opened vast restaurants that serving 12, 1,300 people a day. And that was a, those are the boat people. Again, many of whom did not have any experience in the food business at all, but they had a great deal of experience in the fishing industry. So um, almost every ethnic group, with the exception of the Irish, uh, for reasons that uh, I detail, <laughs> almost every, every oh, ethnic group. I, I understand perfectly. <laughs> but they, they, one of the easiest things to get into initially is some kind of food service. You open a grocery store. You open a pizzeria. You open a little Chinese takeout place. This is easy and very cheap to do. And you can get the whole family together in on it and uh, <clears throat> and thrive. And then they, maybe you'll open another one a few blocks away. And then your son or daughter opens another one. And, and that's how it grows. It's the story of America. Story it's, of a, America. it's a great story. And, I, you know, I think uh, there could be, um, from time to time, I, I was thinking about um, uh, uh, different subjects like, uh, the kind of um, I, I remember when I used to travel around before things were so ubiquitous and sort of cookie cutter in every state that you could mm -hmm. only get a uh, cafe au lait in uh, Louisiana or that general area, New Orleans. 
Um, and then all of a sudden you had um, the Starbucks all over the country at every corner offering the same kinds of things that used to be unique. Uh, well, Star Starbucks, as with Macaroni Grill and all the rest, Starbucks is a very indicative of corporate America getting hold of a, a even an ethnic food or in this case coffee shop. They take something as simple as espresso or cappuccino and they goose it up and goose it up and then they have a blackboard menu, macchiato and this and this and this and the super padum, bada the grande that's so typically American, which is what you don't find in the rest of the world until recently, because if even if you go to Rome now, there's a Starbucks there. There's a McDonald's, which which actually uh, started the whole slow slow food movement in Italy. There's a McDonald's right next to the adjacent to the Spanish Steps in Rome. So it's it's inescapable. Um, KFC is all over Asia, all over Japan, um, and a lot of it, you know, has to do with not the taste or the quality of the food itself. It's that just like blue jeans, it's American. That's very, very much the case. They want to, when they opened in um, Moscow, the first Russian McDonald's, it became the highest grossing McDonald's in the chain at that time. And there were lines out the door, down the street um, to go to McDonald's. Why? Because the, the Russians didn't have their own hamburgers, which are called ketliete. They're really good. Um, no, no, they went there because it was American. And it's like Coca-Cola, or specifically in, in Russia, Pepsi-Cola, which got the the um, uh, license to be the only cola drink in, in Russia. So you don't find much Coca-Cola over there. Um, whether it's Pepsi-Cola or it's Blue Jeans, as I said, um, look, Blue Jeans took over the entire world. Uh, it's because it's America. And um, it's a reverse um, Colombian exchange, as I said. Of, of cultures, not just uh, food culture, but uh, every other form of culture, fashion and sports and everything else. Well, I think uh, this is another reason that we can be very grateful that people like yourself are continuing to investigate those unique experiences where uh, you can go and get uh, very quality food that better represents uh, an individual culture, or certainly somebody who's brought it to a high art as opposed to uh, just a mass produce places for both of them, obviously. But uh, John, we thank you for uh, continuing to supply us with these amazing, thoroughly interesting uh, uh, anecdotes. So we don't we have a sense of where we're going to go when we uh, uh, have a conversation with you. But then you always uh, bring up uh, things that um, about diners that I wasn't even thinking about when I asked the question, and uh, it was brilliant. So thank you. Thank you for but It's always delicious, John. Yes. Uh, it's the lovely and delectable, too. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so in any yeah, event, see you soon. Uh, uh, go to johnmariani.com, uh, and you can order his books, take a look at his archives, and uh, we thank you for joining us. Love and Pizza? Excuse me? I say read my newest novel, Love and Pizza. Chapter Love by, and Pizza, by, yes. You're doing chapter by chapter. You're releasing them uh, as you yeah. finish the chapters. That's fantastic. Thank you. So until the next time, thank you for joining us at Celebrating Act Two. And uh, bon appetit. Take care. Bye-bye.
For more on Celebrating Act Two, visit our webpage, follow us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and tell your friends. Celebrating Act Two is the user manual for the second half of your life.